British Spy Stories, Season 1 Spy or Traitor by M.F. Callagher Read by the author Episode 1 The first glow of dawn hangs in the air, and the lightness of the sky creates breaking flecks across the walls of the bedroom. The man next to her is naked under the quilt. She silently rolls out of bed, pulls on her clothes, and stuffs her handgun in the back of her jeans. Gabrielle is never sure if she enjoys deep cover operations or not. Part of her likes the pretense, likes the idea that you can be anyone you want to be. All you need is MI6 communications branch to knock up a fake passport, some fictional photos for your phone of your family, maybe an Instagram account of your false life, and someone new has been created out of thin air. But part of her too is a professional, only there to meet the objectives of the operation, monitored continually by London to ensure she delivers whatever the needs are of the British government. She watches the sleeping man. He is not all bad, she thinks. His mother would no doubt say he had got in with a bad crowd. But he's a criminal, and a killer too, and his mother doesn't know that. She turns to go and hears the covers rustle faintly behind her. Going already? His voice is hoarse. She turns and smiles at him. I need to work. I told you. Come here, he says. She walks to him and sits on the edge of the bed. He raises an arm and his hand grasps the back of her neck. He tries to pull her towards him, but she resists. Don't, Franz. I know who you are. What? I know you're not who you say you are, he says, his eyes betraying some sadness. Don't be silly. I'll be back tonight. What did the guy say to me? She's called Gabrielle, he said. Is that right? Your real name? And he said you work for British intelligence. What you want about? She leans in and kisses him. His hand moves to her windpipe. He starts to squeeze and doesn't stop. Franz, you're hurting me. She brings her arm up. Her fingers are already in a fist. She hits him hard on the side of the head, and again, and she keeps going until the skin is broken on the side of his face, and his blood drips down onto the bedclothes. He pushes her. Her centre of gravity drives her backwards, but she shifts her weight and recovers. He raises a fisted hand to her. Gabby reaches behind her back and her fingers feel the coldness of her handgun. She sweeps her hand round, pulls the trigger, and a single red spot appears on Franz's forehead, dead centre. He stops mid-punch, sways, then collapses forward onto her, his full body weight hitting her hard and pushing her to the floor. She pulls herself out from under him and stands up. For a second, Gabby stops and looks at him. Then she turns and walks out to the street. Twenty minutes later, in another flat, 
on the other side of Berlin. The peace is broken by the sound of a key in the lock. Gabrielle Lane, senior field officer in the British Security Service, MI6, opens the door and walks in. She heads straight to the bathroom and spends too long under the warmth of the shower to remove the sweat from the previous night. She wraps her dark hair in a light towel, makes coffee and pushes the sliding door to her balcony. This was the reason she insisted with London that they rent this flat for her. The balcony is wide and stretches along the entire width of the flat. It's her place to escape, if only for a few minutes, and get away from the job. Deep undercover takes its toll over time. You don't know who you are in the end. But the core requirement of the job is total immersion in another life. You have to believe in your cover story, or they will see through it. She sips her coffee and looks across the city. Berlin still excites her because it sits strategically between east and west and is the crossing point of so many spy networks. She wonders how long she can go on doing field operations. Maybe she has been doing this job too long already. One day, she knows, she will reach the end of what is bearable. One person can only take so many deaths, violence and pain. Nearly all of the field agents who she considers to be good spies say exactly the same. Maybe it's the only escape you have in field operations. Inside your head you can get away, but never in real life. Gabrielle started her training in an SAS training camp in Ireland. The sergeant had tried to break her. Too pretty, he had said. What's a girl like you want to be here for? Give it up and go back to shopping. On the last day, she had gone into his office and delivered a sharp blow to his testicles. She wasn't going to be forgotten, quickly. She thinks about the people she has killed in her decade in the field. All have been justified in her mind. They were all violent men and women. The world is better off without them. She regrets only one death, a 17-year-old bomber. The girl had been turned by a gang who were much older than her, and she genuinely believed in what she was doing. But Gabrielle had a job to do, and shot her where she knew the girl would die immediately in the least amount of pain. There is no more time to sit and think, as she has work to do. The old-school luxury of an agent being allocated to only one case at a time is long gone. She checks her encrypted messages, and a new job has come in while she was in the shower. There are three broad areas of work allocated to field officers. Intelligence gathering, infiltration, and kill orders. Death is the weapon of last resort for British intelligence. Only when all other options have been exhausted is approval given to end a life. Authority for kill orders only comes from one place. The Secretive Committee N19. It only meets when it needs to consider a request that comes from one of the two branches of British intelligence. MI5 
the British spies who operate inside the UK, or from MI6, the spies based in countries across the world. The new job she has received is a kill order. The man who is the target is Herbert Klingerfeld. He started as a gang master of foreign labour and worked his way up to extortion and eventually arms trading. Herbert sold surface-to-air missiles to terrorists four years ago, and now he is planning a deal with the North Koreans, selling automatic weapons and, more importantly, parts for a dirty bomb. N-19 has deliberated and approved the job. Gabrielle dresses in black jeans, black jumper, a green army jacket and Doc Martin's boots. She walks out to her car and drives to the very edge of East Berlin, where the city ends and the fields take over. This is where Klingerfeld has a large mansion, surrounded by five acres of land, with a large fence all around it. Gabrielle drives the roads that border the estate, but there's no weaknesses in the security that she can see, and rejects the idea of an assassination at the man's home. She heads back into the centre of Berlin and drives around near Klingerfeld's office on Mittelstrasse, then parks in a side street and walks the pavements for three blocks, working out what might be possible. Gabrielle favours operations where she works alone. It is easier for her that way, but she does accept that other people need to be involved. Spying isn't a lone occupation, no matter how much it feels like that sometimes. In her mind, half the people she has worked with have been trustworthy. Some were lazy, some only worked to make sure their bosses noticed their contribution, and a small number had been spies for other countries who had been planted inside MI6. All countries spy on all countries. You just have to know who are the double agents. Then you'll be fine. She pretends to be on a call, puts her phone up to her ear, and acts out talking to someone. This gives her the cover to explore the layout of the reception area to the office block. A security guard sits reading a paper and doesn't even look up. A close-in attack is out of the question, she concludes. There is a small road for cars to pull in and drop off their passengers, and a wall and security gates on the roadside to protect Klingerfeld or anyone else from an attacker. The street has tall buildings along both sides, and this always means that sniping is a good option. It is getting dark when she returns to her flat. She goes online and puts in an order for a sniper for the next day. Gabrielle can't remember how much she slept the previous night and crashes out fully clothed, then wakes at 1am, takes off her clothes and retreats beneath the duvet. Her phone buzzes at 10am the next morning. Hello, Gabby. She recognises the voice immediately. Mac, a proper killer, thank goodness. I never know if I'm going to get some 25-year-old with a gun they'd never used. Got this order on my phone at five this morning and knew I couldn't let you down. Berlin looks sunny but slightly cold, not unlike your good self. Where are you, Mac? 
Military airport in the north, he says. Can't remember the name. I know it. I'll come and pick you up. Mac is a veteran of Afghanistan, one of the top three snipers in British military intelligence. They have worked together on four previous operations, and he is one of the few people who she trusts absolutely. He is sitting on a grass bank on the right-hand side of the main airport entrance as she pulls up. His black hair is short, and his large limbs are sprawled over the grass. They drive to a pub in the countryside, and she orders beers and huge German sandwiches. They sit in the September sun and talk about their lives. Remember that woman in Hungary? He says, almost absent-mindedly. Hannah Matto. That's the one. The one op I almost abandoned. I found it very difficult to kill her. You were young and she was beautiful, she says. But she was a killer. We had to stop her. I guess. His voice drifts away. They sit in silence for a moment and his hand moves across his two-day-old beard. You know why I chose to be a sniper, he says. Why? You're a long way from death. You can pretend that you're not part of it. Why choose it at all? says Gabby. You could have been a bank manager. It's all I can do, he says, looking at her and gently smiling. How long are you going to keep doing this, Mac? As long as they want me. They'll always want you. She narrows her eyes and tries to see more from his face, but can't. Yeah, maybe, he says, but keeps looking at the valley in front of them. A breeze rolls up the grass bank to the table where they sit. She watches his face. For a second, he had let her inside his protective shell, the thing that makes it possible for him to kill and not have nightmares. Now, the barrier has come back down. But there is a bond between them. He raises his glass to her, and they make a silent toast. They sit for a minute without words. Then she says, Time to go, Mac. Gabrielle drives them to the location, and they take seats on the pavement outside a local cafe. She talks through her plan, and he is attentive as she speaks. After half an hour, they finish their drinks. His hand reaches down to a sports holdle by his feet, containing his rifle. They stand up and walk along the pavement. She kisses him on both cheeks. They turn away in different directions, and Gabrielle walks to her car and drives back to the flat. It is in the early evening that she gets a message on her phone, saying that Mac has been shot dead.